0: Hello and welcome back to Why I'll Never Make It for the second part of my conversation with composer and lyricist Georgia Stitt.
1: If everyone out there could see what I see, then I would never hear like, where are the female music directors? We don't know any. Where are the female composers? Why aren't they? And I was like, they're here. They're right here.
0: I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and in today's episode, we're talking about maestro music... Broadway pioneer Mary Rogers, and final five questions with Georgia. But before we get to that interview, I want to take just a second and talk about a very important milestone in the life of this podcast. Today marks the 100th episode of Why I'll Never Make It. That's right. I added up all the regular and bonus episodes and This is the 100th time I'm coming to you with a conversation with a fellow creative or sharing my own thoughts about this business. But now let me take you back a year before this podcast even started. Georgia Stitt was presenting an original choral piece at a New Year's Eve concert at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. 2016 was heading into 2017. And after that concert, she got to talking with a young female composer who told her that she couldn't think of any other female composers that were modeling the type of career she wanted to have. And then a few days later, out of coincidence or serendipity, Georgia received an email from another young female composer. She told Georgia that her grad school musical theater curriculum had no female composers in it. And when she asked why these female writers weren't included, She was told, well, suggest some that you would like to have added to the syllabus. But this young grad student couldn't think of any, and so that's why she reached out to Georgia for recommendations. After bringing these two women together for lunch, Georgia came to realize that women composers and musicians felt lonely and without access to a community or support system that allows composers to move forward in their careers. In an essay she wrote for the online magazine stage and candor months before meeting these two young composers georgia talked about some of the issues women musicians face and was even honest about her own assessments and struggles the first composer to hire georgia for professional work once commented to her i like the way you play piano you play like a man and at the time she was thrilled and flattered by the comment It it meant that she was strong and attacked the keys with passion and energy. But this concept of playing like a man, being better than playing like a woman, lived on in Georgia's psyche. And she explained how this has affected her. Quote, I am constantly fighting against the bias that men are better musicians than women. I fight it prominently out in the world, I fight it quietly among my peers. And I even fight it secretly in myself. And so as Georgia and I started talking about Maestra, I wondered if that composer's comments and this internal fight that she mentioned in the essay played a role in her eventually wanting to create a community to advocate for women musicians.
1: Well, I haven't thought about that before. (laughs) Um, Probably, probably, probably. I mean, I think in the article, I go on to explain that if there is a um, up and coming composer that I don't know, and it's a guy, and I think I've maybe gotten past this now. But at the time that I was writing this, I thought, oh, who is he? Why don't I know him? Mm-hmm. And if it was a woman, I thought, oh, who's that? You know, with the judgment in my voice, like, if she was good, I would have heard of her, you know, mm-hmm. that I had as as dismissive tendencies as other people and i think i was you know when when you've been raised in a system that values uh not just values but like i had only ever had male bosses and male conductors i had never worked with a female conductor or composer really i did work with janine very early in my career and i i think that that was pivotal for me even though we haven't talked she and i haven't talked about that but i do think it was pivotal in her very famous phrase, you have to see it to be it. Um, I think knowing that she was doing that was part of why I thought, oh, maybe I could do this too. So I I don't think it's the fight in myself that led me to starting Maestra. It was the recognition that because of who I was, I was seeing all of these really fantastic female composers and female music directors and female orchestrators and female music copyists, but they weren't working at the A level. and um, And I thought... If, if everyone out there could see what I see, then I would never hear, like, where are the female music directors? We don't know any. Where are the female composers? Why aren't they? And I was like, they're here. They're right here. And so the first thing that I did um, was I gathered the com- all the composers, all the female composers that I knew, and we had a party, like a cocktail party. And I was like, I just thought we should know each other because we, we're aware of each other, but we feel a little bit competitive. Um, like, oh, why did she get that thing instead of me? And... Um, so it was a
0: very insular competition. It wasn't that you were competing against men. But it, you, you were almost kind of
1: well, competing mean, against each other as two, well. Well, I mean, I think two, three years ago when this all started, I very much believed if there are going to be a list of five composers competing for this opportunity, there's going to be one woman on it. They're not going to have two women on it. Like people don't know that there are two women. So, you know, it just in the beginning of the conversations of diversifying, it's like, well, we'll get this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And, oh, well, we have to have a woman. Okay, great. We'll put put a woman on the list. So it, we're competing for that one spot, I mm-hmm. think. We were aware that we were competing for that one spot. Um, but but also there weren't – I wasn't aware of many. Of that first – that I, I came home and made a list of uh, all the female composers that I knew that were actively working and writing scores and that, you know, that would be – that would benefit from knowing each other. And I think that first list had about 22 people on it. And even that, I remember saying to people, they're like, wow, 22 women composers. I don't know. I'm not sure I could name 22 women composers. And I was like, right. But now we're getting to know each other. And now two years later, the New York City group has 135 women in it. Hmm. Of women, not just people who are like, aspiring to write musicals but people who are actively out there working as composers they're they're doing the job and not the the lyricists and not the book writers and not the producers and not the directors just the composers and then we have a um we have a facebook group that it has it's from music directors and i think there are between five and six hundred women in that now it's it's mostly american although we have we we just had an offshoot for uh a UK group that has started and there is now a uh, interest in starting one in Australia, you know, these communities and, and they are turning out to be the lifeblood of this organization, these music directors, because they are, you know, shows go out on tour and, um, Somebody will say, I'm the assistant conductor of Blah Blah Show and we're coming through this town. And then somebody else will say, oh, I live in that. I'm a music director in that town. I'll take you to lunch. Or can I come sit in your pit and watch you conduct? Or, Mm. you know, and so there's networking happening that didn't happen before. And I think there's real value in these women knowing that they're not the only one. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. They're not the only one trying to do this for a living
0: and and national tours are a great way to do that because in New York, it's kind of staying in the bubble. But once you go out into the rest of the country and especially if it's international tours, then you can really start to see these people that maybe they never saw a a female music director or conductor.
1: Right. And we've, and so now the Maestro website also has a directory. um, And we've been just encouraging women who do this for a living in any of those categories to submit a profile. It's free. You can create your own profile page and click on certain categories that apply to your work, like I'm a member of the union or I'm not a member of the union. I live in this city or I, um, I'm i a conductor and a pianist. I'm a conductor but not a pianist. I'm an orchestrator. You click the categories. Yeah. And what the goal is that it's searchable. So if you are not one of us, if you're a producer or a director or a writer and you're like, I really would like to hire – a music director for this production I'm doing in Boston and I need a non-union blah blah, blah that you can search for it and find the woman who's qualified to do it. Hmm. And we're, I'm starting to get feedback that that's working that more and more people are, I just don't want anyone ever to be able to say, well, we tried to hire a woman, but we couldn't find her. Like we, you know, I knew three women and they weren't available. It's <laughs> like
0: there's more than three. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so is is Maestra seen more as a community or an advocacy group or both?
1: It's a community. Um, the, it's providing visibility Uh, opportunity. (laughs) We'll have to look at my mission statement, which I wrote and can't quote you right now. But visibility to me was the first thing, you know, certainly for the first year goal. It was just sort of saying, this is who the women are, are pictures of them. That's why the Instagram account and um, the Twitter account just sort of like, so if you're a person who's paying attention, you just see all these women. And especially for the women who are uh, maybe not at the center of the scene to see the other women. I've gotten lots of feedback from people that say, just it just fills me with joy to see all these women doing what I do. I didn't know they were out there, you know, and so it's building this community and connecting them um, and empowering them to like, In so many communities and so many colleges, women say, I'm the only woman in the pit. I'm the only woman on, I'm the only musician at my faculty at my school, or I'm the only woman. And, and the issues that come up for them, like giving them a space to talk about that. Yeah. So community is the first thing. But then, um, in March of this year, we became a not-for-profit officially. And part of what we've been doing over the summer is starting to identify, okay, now what do we do with that not-for-profit? Like, what does that mean? Because, we were kind of just a club. <laughs> and so we are starting a mentorship program, and we I mean, we have already started. we were at the end of the first year of a mentorship program, and we um for composers, for high school age composers working with women who are oh, professional composers in our group and we have that must be a
0: thrill for those high school students
1: i think so i mean i haven't done a whole lot of follow-up with them yet but i Mm -hmm. certainly think so and things like they get invited to watch rehearsals and they get invited to sit in the pit or they get you know if the composer has tickets they'll invite her to come along or you know so those sorts of things and we um we have a music director's training program because i think one of the things that we are observing happening is that uh there is a demand for female music directors. People are paying attention to the, like, well, we can't have a show that has all male everything. We right. can't have an all male creative team. Like, that's bad. So we could hire a female what? Like, female director seems scary. <laughs> so what if we hire a female conductor? How bad that could that be? So the women that I say are the, um, the women that are sort of already working at the Broadway level are staying busy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's creating these openings for, the next level of women who are being promoted more quickly than they would have been before. And sometimes the thing that's missing is the few years of being someone's assistant that are so valuable. I think the years that I was an assistant are really where I learned everything about music directing because you watch someone else do it and you're not in charge of it. And then when you finally are asked to do it, you're like, Oh, just do it the way that person did it. And, and you've learned the trick. So if you skip that step of being an assistant, um, then, then sometimes you don't have the skills to, I'm sure you have the skills to play the piano or to conduct the musical skills, but the management skills and the how the room works skills. And so um, Mary Mitchell Campbell and I have started a music director's training program where we're training, especially women uh, music directors to be ready for those jobs when they come. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. She and I worked together in the Adam's family. Oh the yeah. national tour. Yeah. I was thinking back as you were talking about the composers, musical directors, and While composers, yes, I would say that certainly the the songs that I sing are mostly written by men. Mm -hmm. I I think that's just how how it's been in the music that I found. But when it comes to the actual performance being on stage, I would say that except for directors, those are still usually men, but music directors, stage management, a lot of the other top positions are starting to be filled by women. And, and I, I see them more than I see men in those positions. Oh, that's it's, interesting. So so it certainly seems like in my experience, I'm seeing a female presence that maybe wasn't there 15, 20 years ago.
1: That's good. Uh, is looking at statistics, and I hope that before too long, I won't give a date because I'm not sure what the date is, but before too long we'll be able to, like, announce some t- statistics. But we've got um, – Certainly the statistics from the musicians' union are headed our way, I think, that are about, like, who is actually working in each instrument pit, and and you probably won't be surprised to hear that the instruments are the players are gendered by instrument I was just about to ask it
0: because brass is almost all, all men It is and violins strings I would assume are Cellos mostly are women Cellos are
1: specifically high female harps flutes high right, female right, yeah. brass percussion yeah is bass men. are yeah. predominantly male and when i say that you smile and nod knowingly yes of course that's true And um, there's a woman on our advisory board who's also uh, on the leadership at 802, who's a professional flute player. And she said when she was in the fifth or sixth grade, when it was time to choose instruments, she said to her band director, I presume, I want to play the drums. And the band director said, no, 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 boys play the drums. Why don't you play the flute? Wow. And that sentence was the only Mm -hmm. conversation there ever was about that. Changed her musical trajectory. And she is a professional flute player and she loves her flute. She's had a career and everything. But when I spoke to her about it, she said, I always wonder if I would have been a good drummer. Hmm. Like, because that is what – somebody told me that my impulse was wrong and it, it shaped who I was. And so I think our work is not just about getting the women into the pits, but like looking at sort of the societal reasons why instruments are gendered. You know, I read an essay from the classical world that said, we in life historically have not wanted our women to be loud. You don't no. want loud women. And so when you look at the instruments that are played, they are the softer instruments right. and the more feminine instruments traditionally. I've got that in air quotes. Um you know, one of the statistics that I can tell you is, uh, I, I won't quote the actual statistic because we're still double and triple checking it, but I'll say that there are um, guitar players are predominantly male, especially in the Broadway pits. And that the number of women guitar players hired is, is I'll say this way, shaped by whether they're in required to be hired because it's an all-female band or whether they're visible on stage. And so if you take away those two elements, the number of female guitar players that are hired is very, 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 very low.
0: So if they're more visible, then it's a, a likelier it's chance like the, of having a woman?
1: Yeah. We want, you know, a hot woman right, right. guitar player on yeah, the, stage. Yeah, because that's
0: hot playing, having a woman thrash a yeah, guitar Exactly,
1: um, And then that increases the likelihood of her being hired. But it, if you're just looking for a guitar player to play in the pit and it's a person who's not going to be visible and you're not required to hire an all-female band, you're probably going to hire a guy. Um, which then like what does that say to the women who are trying to be professional guitar players? So we're looking at all of yeah. that. There's just a lot that's under the umbrella. And I think there's when you asked if we we're an advocacy group or a club, I mean the, the the group started as a club and a community, but because we now are a community, we're we're taking in from our members like what are the issues that concern you and what are the the ways in you think that you think we as a collective can affect change in this industry. And that's where they're coming up.
0: And I would assume that it's a that it's a joint effort, women putting themselves out there, going for this, going for that. But then what is the responsibility for men, do you see, in this work of Maestra and the promotion that you're trying to do for women?
1: That's great. There's a fantastic model... Let me see if I can think that anytime you have a job opening in the recording industry, they're trying to say, make sure that there are at least two women on the list of candidates. You know, that if you're interviewing people, make sure you interview at least two women. And, um, and I think that's fantastic that if you're like, we want to hire a music director, make sure there are at least two women. And I think we have to apply the similar, if not the same parameters to people of color, like, make sure that not everyone on your list is white, or you are part of the problem of like, why don't these people have access? Why aren't there more people of color who are working in this field? Well, Because they don't, they don't see a way there is no model for them. Hmm. You know, we are not providing access. And so I think that's one thing is when you are the person who can do the hiring, ask yourself if you are looking hard enough, if you are looking hard enough. And that's another reason why I think the Meister directory is so important is if I'm saying to you, make sure there are two women on the list, then I want you to be able to find those two women, use your search parameters and find at least two people who would be viable candidates that are worthy of being interviewed. Um, and, I mean, I really think that's the key thing. And uh, I had a, a friend of mine asked a music director. The music director was trying to hire an assistant, and um, and all the the potential candidates were men. And my friend said to the music director, uh, "Why are there no women on your list of potential candidates?" And the music director said, "I just want to work with someone I've worked with before. This is too too important a job for me to work." Some, with someone that I ha- I don't know. It's not the job for me to break in someone that I don't know. And my friend said, how come you've never worked with any women? Like, why are there no women on your list yeah. among the people you've yeah. worked with before? And, you know, a lot of deep self-reflecting and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately asking the question of like, are we just hiring the people we've worked with before because it's easier and because it makes us look better and because it's safer and we have too much else to worry about anyway? If that is true, fair. I know what it's like to be in a high-stakes situation. You need your people around you. But what are the situations that are not high-stakes? What are the, like, one-night-only events or the, um, like, I'm going to put together a band for this person's cabaret, which is certainly less stakes than a Broadway show, or maybe it's not the recording session, but maybe it's the, you know, the jam session, or where the places that I can try out people Mm -hmm. that I've never worked with before so that when the high-stakes job comes along... I have a roster of diverse candidates that I could consider. And I'm as you know, I've gotten more and more texts and emails from music directors saying, okay, I hear you. I'm going to, I want to hire a female for this job. Who do you recommend? And I'm like, I'm not an agent. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know. I.
0: This could be your new job as you as you go forward.
1: That's part, another reason why the Meister Directory is there is that you have to do your due diligence. You have mm-hmm. to, you know, I can give you a bunch of names, but I don't want you to hire someone based on my recommendation and then not well, like her. Well, they
0: still have to fit the, the job. Yeah, but yeah. you
1: have to, like, it's harder. It's harder to find the person who wasn't just handed to you on a silver platter. You know, it's harder yeah. to find the person who isn't the one that's been doing this work across the board. But... How great is it when you discover that person, give that person an opportunity and that person rises to the occasion and then can go forward and um, and be successful?
0: Because so much of this industry is networking. And so it it sounds like you're talking about make sure you're always expanding your network, you know, take an inventory of who you know and who Mm -hmm. you've worked with and try to expand that. So that so it's think, not the same people.
1: That's right. Over and over. I mean I think we think yeah. that about actors, right? Otherwise mm-hmm. we would just use the same actors in every every production. But that's why we have auditions to meet new people and see new people yeah. and let agents submit, you know, people that they have found. And but the idea that we we don't audition in the music department, we don't. That's not standard in how our work happens. So it is how do I continue to make sure that I'm meeting new people and that I'm not just meeting the people who remind me of me and went to my college and trained with the okay. same teacher I trained with, you know, but that, that are people who might bring diversity and interesting new perspectives and the whole musical experience.
0: Do you do that with singers as well? Cause you mentioned that you have written for Kelly O'Hara, Kate Baldwin, those type. Do you also look to, to newer singers and to bring them into the type of music you write?
1: I do. Well, I'm not, um, I'm not usually the one auditioning them or certainly if I'm, if I'm behind the table at an audition process, I'm always watching people thinking with, half of mine to casting the show and the other half to like, what do I need for my own purposes? And I have been known like when somebody's like, well, this person's not right Mm -hmm. for hours. I'm like, well, can I have that resume? I'm gonna just put that in my backpack Mm because I think Mm -hmm. I could use that person. Um, and, and certainly now it's more about, you know, people's online presence and, and you can hear people sing and discover people in other ways, but like I'm working on, I'm making an album this fall and I've just started a brainstorming list of, Singers I would like to work with, singers I, whose voices I would like to have on the album. And as that list grows, I'm like, all right, who would be right for what song and who would be right? And um, and may, for me, it's like, maybe I can have that person come learn a song for a concert. And if that goes well, then that person becomes the person on the album. But it is it is nurturing relationships, yeah. you know, building um, relationships with people so that you you trust them and you give them your little babies, your songs. <laughs>
0: And what has been the the hardest part of writing a song, and then it's now in the hands of a singer or a director or something? Is is that is that hard to kind of let go of that baby, so to speak?
1: Well, so far in my experience, um, for the first incarnation of a song, I'm usually in the room. You know, whether it's the recording or the world premiere or the the concert, the cabaret venue, or you know the the first time someone's singing it in public, it's usually with my guidance and. And oftentimes I'm the one, the piano, like shaping it and sometimes still rewriting it as it goes while we're figuring it out. And then there does come a point where you put it down on paper and you send it out into the world. And I I usually think in that point, if I have already made the what I consider the definitive version of it, the either the recording or the the world premiere of the show, then it's yours to interpret so long as you don't mess with it like so long right. as you don't veer from what's on right. well, for auditions are fine <laughs> but
0: you know right, right. I saw your piece, eyes get wide right, it's like trying to piece together 16 bars
1: um but I mean uh like I, I a year ago I did the snow child at um arena stage and there are moments where you've written something and the director has an idea and says just let me try it and the director tries something and you're like ah oh, that's not what I meant yeah. but I would say um one of the the big things I learned through that process and continue to learn is that, uh, is that just letting someone try it, if you have an open mind about letting them try it, you may find that there's there's they're right and that mm-hmm. there's great wealth in having let them try it, as opposed to letting them try it and stewing about it and then being like, no, that doesn't work and I see, here's why.
0: Yeah. That, you know, yeah, just yeah. stop being
1: open-minded and listening and letting the possibility occur that someone else is smarter than you. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that's that collaboration you were referring to earlier Yes, about about hearing all voices and being open yes. to those changes. What has the organization, or is there a story that you can think of of someone that's really been impacted by Maestra and how it's helped them or furthered them or increased their network.
1: I can definitely think of uh, several musicians who have been um, lifted, like promoted in a faster way because somebody was paying attention. Uh, And what I specifically mean is that the women in Maestra who are more established are starting to look to the younger women and hiring from within those ranks because they are starting to get to know each other. It's really just the community of it is like uh, a more established woman saying, I need to get to know a pianist and meets a pianist and then suddenly the pianist is the associate conductor. And so, you know, that sort of elevation or someone taking someone under their wing and, and, and pushing them along. Uh, I probably could give you a more coherent answer to this, but I do think it's, it's something that we're going to write. We're going to start to write up for our own purposes. And I probably will wait and let them do that. (laughs)
0: Right, 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 right. For, for you, what has Maestro meant to you and how has it impacted your uh, not only your life personally, but professionally.
1: Well, I think I'm benefiting from the community too. You know, I being a composer is a very isolating experience. I spend a lot of time in this room that we're in at this piano right behind me, um, writing things. And then when they're done, I email them or I print them out and hand them to somebody. And so it's very rare that you're in the room with another composer and certainly another female composer, my husband excluded. And, and so that community of, of the people who are doing the same thing has been valuable to me. Um, I think, uh, the online groups are great. The, uh, group called Maestra Moms that are just about the, uh, the women who are trying to be parents and musicians at the same time. And the unique challenges of that, uh, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, being a parent and trying to do anything at the same time is hard, but there are certain things specific to people who are trying to write shows or. Um, I told a story on Facebook that there was a day where I was working in my studio and my husband's working in his studio in the same house. And my daughter came in and knocked on my door and and was trying to get my attention. And I said, honey, I, I, I can't deal with that right now. Can you go ask your dad? And she said, I can't. He's working.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but we were doing the same thing. And just the unique, you know, okay, I, I understand that. That's a cultural truth. That's fine. But there's something about that that it's nice to have a, a group to share that with honestly i think um when more people are talking about who the women composers are i'm probably on the list more so i think it if it's self-serving in any way it's that it's just that there's uh there's a profile everyone's profile is highlighted because of this work and mine's among them so that's fine with me that's good
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's all about being known. And as you say, having that community around you, supporting you. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Georgia. This has been a joy. Thank
1: you so much. about
0: you and Maestra.
1: I'm glad. Thanks for featuring our group.
0: As Georgia mentioned in the previous episode, the Maestra timeline of female Broadway composers shows a gap during the golden age of musicals, during a span of about 30 years only two women composed musicals for broadway the first was anna russell in 1953 and the second six years later was mary rogers in fact mary was born in 1931 right at the beginning of that 30-year gap her father however the famed and legendary composer richard rogers produced some of his best and most well-known music during that time. So from a very young age, Mary was surrounded by music. Mary and her sister Linda had routine piano lessons and were drilled in music by their father, who improvised tests, for example, striking chords on a piano for the girls to identify. Growing up, the Rogers family would often spend time with the Hammersteins, of course. And on one particular weekend, Mary met their next-door neighbor for the first time, Stephen Sondheim. The next time they saw each other was at the opening night of Carousel in 1945. But it was a few years later when they were both apprentices at the Westport Country Playhouse that they became lifelong friends both played a vital role in each other's lives and careers. For example, in 1949 it was Rogers who introduced Sondheim to his future collaborator Hal Prince at the opening of South Pacific. And then in 1957, at the opening of West Side Story, Sondheim introduced her to Leonard Bernstein who hired her to produce and write for his television concert series. But just two years later, she was making her own Broadway debut with Once Upon a Mattress. The musical had a Broadway revival in 1996 and has also been presented on television. One such production in 2005 for Disney ABC TV featured Georgia Stitt as production music coordinator. Now, in the creation of Once Upon a Mattress, Mary played some of the songs from the show for her father, Particularly, Yesterday I Loved You. To which he asked, Why did you do that tempo change in the bridge? I wouldn't have done that. Of that exchange, Mary says, I told myself I must never ask his opinion again. Because I'll never know who wrote the music. And neither will anybody else. Rogers went on to write music for another Broadway show in 1963 called Hotspot. And a popular off-Broadway review, The Mad Show in 1966, which was a collection of skits adapted from MAD Magazine. And in one of their only musical collaborations, Rogers and Sondheim created a parody song of the jazz standard The Girl from Ipanema," sung by Linda Lavin on the original cast recording. But throughout her many compositions for the stage and television, including writing the lyrics for the Captain Kangaroo theme song, she would never again match the success of Once Upon a Mattress. Though she did find success writing books, most notably Freaky Friday, which was turned into a movie starring Jodie Foster and later a remake starring Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. In a 1997 article for the New York Times, Rogers commented on the decline of her songwriting fortunes. She said, I'm not as single-minded about composing music as my father was or my son is. That son is Adam Gettle, the Tony Award-winning composer of Light in the Piazza and Floyd Collins. In fact, years earlier, Mary had suggested the idea of Light in the Piazza to her father, who decided against it. But then decades later, she passed the idea on to her son. When asked why she didn't adapt the work herself, she said, I had a pleasant talent, but not an incredible talent. I was not my father or my son, and you have to abandon all kinds of things. For Rogers, she found certain obstacles to being a female songwriter, saying that composing was not something girls were expected to do. Quote, the country must be full of talented women composers, I know it. The trouble is, they don't know it. And so for many years, She helped a new generation of artists know their talent. As the chair of the Juilliard School from 1994 to 2001, she was involved in many aspects of the school and considered the students her kids. When she passed away in 2014, the president of Juilliard praised his longtime friend and colleague. Mary was an amazingly vibrant and unique human being. She was truly a life force whose presence illuminated any room she entered. Mary Rogers, composer, author, and patron to the arts. To learn more about Mary Rogers, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at WinMePodcast. There, I'll be tweeting pictures and articles from The New Yorker, Desert News, and The New York Times, which provided the details for today's biography. Now, normally the final five questions is its own bonus episode, but with this being the 100th episode, I thought I'd fill it with as many goodies as possible. So here's Georgia Stitt again with the same final five questions I've posed to every guest this season. If you could have any other job outside of the arts, what would it be?
1: I was thinking about this as I was anticipating this uh, interview, and my first answer was going to be a novelist, that I would I would write novels. And then I thought, that's sort of still the arts. That's a cheaty answer, because right, right. I'm a You're writer. You're still
0: lyricist, just without music.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then I, I think I would be a travel agent. That's my new one. So I could travel around the world, and help other people travel around the world, and, and stay where, in where, nice hotels. where would be your
0: top place that you would want to send people? What's your favorite? Italy. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. Yep. And, and where in Italy
1: specifically? Well, I have lived in um, Umbria in Spoleto. So I would I don't send know people either there. Those... It's, it's halfway between Rome and Florence. Okay, okay. It's a little small town in the mountains and I would stay there. But uh, but I also think uh, southern Italy is is vacation heaven. Mm-hmm.
0: Very much so. Yeah, that, that's where I had my honeymoon. So well, was, lucky you. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, number two, what is a, a, a bucket list show that you want to work on or a, a particular artist that you want to work with?
1: Um, I would like to conduct Sweeney Todd someday. Mm. I'll just put that out there. I was, uh, both West Side Story and Sweeney Todd are things that, uh, crossed my desk when I was younger I I had the possibility to conduct them and I consciously thought I'm not ready. I don't, I think, I don't think I'm a strong enough conductor to do that yet, but I am now. But now you're
0: ready. Uh, number three, who do you look up to as either a mentor or
1: someone who inspires you? Uh, my answer is Mary Mitchell Campbell. Mm-hmm. and um, and I first thought I was going to talk about composer, writer, mentors, but I actually think Mary Mitchell Campbell is a Broadway music director. She's currently conducting Mean Girls, music supervisor of many things, um, and she also started a not-for-profit called Artists Striving to End Poverty. It's A-Step, and um, they just had their 10-year anniversary, and watching her navigate her social activism and her music career – and continuing to be a person of grace and uh kindness and really uh intelligent expertise in this field is uh I think she's my hero. Yeah.
0: Yeah, she, she's I'm uh, working with her in Adams family. I mean she was she was tenacious and she was on top of us and she knew exactly what she wanted out yep. of us in the ensemble and she got it.
1: Yeah, she's a pro. Yeah. I mean she no question wonderful. musically she's a pro and that she can do that and still have this whole other life where she's like speaking at the UN about poverty mm. um, is sounding to me. Yeah.
0: Now I don't normally interject in the final five, but I wanted to second everything that Georgia said about Mary Mitchell Campbell, who serves on the steering committee of Maestra. She is such a talented and passionate artist, not only professionally, but in her personal work with a step shortly after that address at the UN. Mary Mitchell was on Fox 5 New York talking about her message.
1: Uh, We were discussing the paradox of income and happiness and how... We in the Western world seem to believe that to be successful and, and to be happy, you have to make a lot of money and have a lot of things. And that's not And that that's true, actually right? been proven in research to be untrue. Happiness does exist very heavily in some of the poorest countries.
0: To learn more about artists striving to end poverty, you can listen to my Spotlight episode at the end of Season 3 with Samantha Manfredi. And you can go to their website, astep.org. All right, now back to the final five. Number four, name a lesson or trait that took you a while to learn or one that you're still working on yourself.
1: I think I alluded to it in the podcast interview, but um, there's something about listening and acknowledging that the other person's, instead of listening defensively, like listening for the moment where you can make your point, but listening for the possibility that the other person might be right is, is a lifelong lesson for me that, that I think I um, am growing out of being a person who listens defensively into a person who just listens openly. Uh, And it's, it's something I continue to work on. that's so important.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I kind of have my own motto of instead of trying to be right, I would rather do the right thing. Mm. And, and, And whether that's in my own life or whether it's composing or artistically, I'd rather the product or my life be, be heading in the right direction rather than I'm right you know, yeah. listen to
1: me. Right. There's, at the end of that, I'm right and I won is <laughs> not – I have a friend the other day who <clears throat> said she was going into couples counseling and she said, I have to fight the urge to like want to win therapy. Like, And yeah. I thought I know exactly what that is in any relationship, whether it's therapy or anything, that you go in like, I'm going to win this. They're going. I'm going to be the smartest one in the room. I'm going to get it. Like I'm going to get what I want out of right. this.
0: The, the therapist is going to agree with me.
1: Yeah. Or, and it's that way in collaboration, like, I'm going to prove to you why the way I want to write it is right. you'll eventually see my way. Exactly. As opposed to, like, let me listen to what you're saying and open my mind to the possibility that you're seeing it differently and that you're right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting how that thought alone creates a journey rather than a dead end.
1: Yep. That is collaboration.
0: Number five, what is the best advice you have received?
1: Okay. This one is so good. At the Lily Awards a few years ago, one of the award winners was Denai Guerrera, and she's a playwright, and she gave an advice to young playwrights, things that she wished people had told her or things that she wished she had known. And the one that just implanted itself in my brain was, go where you are loved. Stop trying to beat down the doors of the people who are not interested in buying what you're selling, and uh, and stop trying to convince everyone else that that you are worthy of love or attention, but go where you feel that love and attention because that's where your success is is mm-hmm. how I interpreted that. And I think about that all the time that, um, that the people who have championed my work or commissioned my work, that, that that's my home, that that's where you belong. So continue to make work there. That's where mm-hmm. your success is. And instead of being mad that like, this one theater won't won't give you the time of day or this award keeps rejecting you or this whatever. Not that you shouldn't keep applying or keep trying, but that your identity is not caught up in that failure when you have this bastion of love over here that is trying to help you be successful. Just continue to go where you are loved.
0: Yeah. That's so important as an artist because I think we need that freedom and support that love can bring us rather than trying to fight and beat our heads against the wall. Exactly. Thank you for joining me and being a part of the WinMe community. I am so grateful that you listen, and especially to those of you who have reached out to me personally with your questions and donations. It's been quite a journey so far with some wonderful episodes and guests. I am excited for the next 100 episodes and will do everything I can to keep you listening and coming back each and every week. Up next is Charlotte Cohn, an actress, director, and former Israeli tank commander, so you don't want to miss that one. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I'll see you next time on Why I'll Never Make It.